0: Is a topic that really is talked about a lot more in the Bible than you might think. When you think of war, you immediately go to passages in the Old Testament where the Israelites are conquering the promised land, um, uh, and then then when they are sent into exile by Babylon, and you think of it in those kinds of terms. You think about peace, you think about it more personally, right? Um, That having peace like a river uh, was one of those one of those hymns that came to mind uh, as I was thinking about this. In fact, if you look in the hymnal, uh, if, if you look up the word, the word rural, war, war, yeah, excuse me, sorry. If you look up war in the hymnal, uh, you're not going to find any hymns on the topic of war. You'll find a couple that mention war. You'll find one or two that are set in war. You'll find um, the, the battle hymn, uh, the the Star Spangled Banners in there, which is a story of a war. Right? Uh, the rockets red glare, the bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that our flag was still there, you know? So, so you get a little bit of a setting of war in one or two of them, but there's not much on war. Most of it's about peace and it's about personal peace. But it's hardly ever about peace between nations, which I think is kind of sad because we do serve the prince of peace, do we not? So, so maybe, maybe, uh, maybe this is a topic that We don't think enough about. And when we do, we think of it more on a personal level, uh and less on a cosmic level. So so let's let's take a step back and let's consider peace and war through the biblical perspective. We'll start by reading the Baptist Faith and Message, hearing what the framers of of that document say, and then we'll look at the scripture and see what the scripture says, because their comments are very brief, but the scripture has a lot to say. So Baptist Faith and Message says this, it is the duty of Christians to seek peace with all men on principles of righteousness. In accordance with the spirit and teachings of Christ, they should do all in their power to put an end to war. The true remedy for the war spirit is the gospel of our Lord. The supreme need of the world is the acceptance of his teachings in all the affairs of men and nations and the practical application of his law of love. Christian people throughout the world, sorry, Christian people throughout the world should pray for the reign of the Prince of Peace. Simple enough, right? We shouldn't be striving for war. We should be striving for peace. Uh, But in reality, it's going to come down to the gospel. It's going to come down to Jesus Christ doing it. And so our role is to pray for it. Okay. Simple enough, right? Well, the Bible actually goes into more detail. This is one of those cases where the Baptist faith and message, I wish was a little bit longer. I wish it ex- ex- expressed this a little more because the scripture says a lot about it. Part of the reason it doesn't is because of our mixed heritage. Baptists, if you'll remember, come from two streams. One was Anabaptists. Now, the Anabaptists were more of an indirect influence than more of a direct uh, uh, ancestry, okay? So if you think about it like a family tree, you got mom and dad. But then you also have aunts and uncles and other family that you know well and that you interact with and that have input on you. But it's not as direct, right? But mom and dad are more directly. Where our moms and dads, so to speak, are come from the rank, come from the ranks of English separatists, getting out of the Church of England. And now one of the things about that is they're, they weren't exactly too excited about the magisterium in general. This idea that the church and the state cooperate together or or are headed by the same entity and therefore are kind of intertwined with each other. English separatists didn't like that idea. Part of the reason was because the Anglican church headed by the king was using the British military, the English military to enforce their form of religion. If you were an Anglican, you were an unbeliever. And if you're an unbeliever, well, then you're ostracized. The Catholics were doing the same thing. If you aren't Catholic, you aren't part of the church. You didn't get the means of grace. You didn't, you didn't have the possibility uh, of forgiveness for your sins apart from the church. And the English separatists, later Baptists, uh, we, we really didn't like that idea, that whole intermeshing of government and church. We talked a little bit about that last week. We're going to talk more about that next week when we really deal with religious liberty. But we also come from an Anabaptist tradition that was not only like government and church really don't belong together, but was the church should stay completely out of the government and the government should stay completely out of the church. There should be no intermixing whatsoever. It's not that the church should have influence in government. No, It's two totally different things. And so for them, the idea of war, the church has no business being in war because war is something that nations do, governments do. War is not something the church does. We fight our spiritual war, they fight the physical wars. And so the Anabaptists would look at war and say, we have nothing to do with that. That that has nothing to do with us. Okay? These both influenced Baptists for a long time, and, and many Baptists uh, uh, over the years have been highly against any form of war. Not only should there not be war, but we absolutely cannot participate under any grounds or circumstances, they would say. Others have been more lenient. You know, war is not preferred. Sometimes it's the best option. Sometimes it's the only option, they'd say. And when it's a just war, then yeah, that that you just have to. Others will go a little bit further. Sometimes Baptists, especially in this country, have the the Babylon Bee put it real well. I think it ran a story, and I forget the exact wording of the headline, but it was something to the effect of uh, First Baptist Dallas to hold a service uh, uh, in recognition of Donald Trump. The idea is that some are so patriotic. That they confuse America with heaven and they confuse, uh, what is, what is in America's interest or what they believe is in America's interest with the kingdom of God. And they get the two conflated and they think that America is God's kingdom or is really close to God's kingdom. And so, so anything that America does is best, regardless of what it is, regardless of where it is, regardless of how we do it. America, America, surely. Surely the Bible has some wisdom on these topics, and, and it does. The biblical concept of war incorporates ideas of justice, sowing and reaping, and divine judgment. But before we talk about war, there's a reason this is called peace and war. That's how they named the article. I think we first have to discuss what peace is. Peace comes from the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is not just no fighting. Okay, so so think about your kids, okay? Uh, Those of you who had multiple kids in the home can really identify with this. There are times when your kids are not fighting, but they're certainly not at peace. You know what I'm talking about? They're not talking to each other. They're staying away from each other. The slightest thing will set off a terrible crisis, but right now they're not fighting. Y'all seen it. War and peace, uh, those are two very different things. Shalom is the idea, not just of no fighting, but it's the idea of wholeness, completeness. That's why uh, Jews or native Hebrew speakers will greet with shalom, peace. Because not only are they saying, I don't want to fight you, <laughs> I come in peace. They're saying, I wish on you wellness, wholeness completeness. That's the idea of peace. The idea of peace isn't just no fighting. The idea of peace is that things are the way they should be. And in Christ, we find the fulfillment of that peace. I mean, after all, Isaiah 9, verse 6, we all know this verse, right? For unjust a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Ironically, I find it interesting. That's the only time in Scripture that name is used. I would have thought somewhere later they would have used that name to speak of Christ. Now, they kind of get close in Revelation. Revelation, you get the the rider on the white horse who, who is going into war, and, and on, on the horse is one called Peace. But this is the only time he's called the Prince of Peace. If you want to put it this way, if you watch crime shows, you've probably heard the phrase MO. It's actually short for a Latin phrase, modus operandi. It means the mode of operation, the the typical way that somebody acts. Peace is Jesus Christ's MO. Now, that doesn't mean that he always only does peace, because we see a warring Jesus in the book of Revelation, do we not? There are times when he comes to make war. There's one time in particular, that he will come to make war. But his typical mode of operation is peace. It's what he does. It's what he brings. He brings peace between us and God. When we sin against God, we are completely turning our backs on him. We are, we are enemies of God. And Jesus comes and reconciles us with God, bringing us to peace with our creator. He brings us to peace within the church, that Holy Spirit of his indwelling each of us brings us together in community in a way that would not happen otherwise. He brings, ultimately, peace to the entire cosmos, peace from sin and from death, making the universe whole again, the way that it ought to be, the way that it was when God created it. He's the prince of peace. That means at all peace, Oh, genuine peace—that's his word. The Baptist faith and message recognizes this. Uh, one one way that it states it is: uh, the true remedy for the war spirit is the gospel of our Lord. So you can try all kinds of different things, and you can make um, you can make treaties, armistices. You may you may make a, a, a temporary peace, but true peace only comes from the gospel. The supreme need of the world is the acceptance of his teachings in all the affairs of men and nations and the practical application of his law of love. You see, as we live the gospel out, we're helping others come to peace. To bring peace, Christ must reign in us and all around us too. Jesus says it this way in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, not peacekeepers, not the ones who try to make everybody get along, But the peacemakers, the ones that bring peace where there can be no peace, they should be called the sons of God. Why? Because they're just acting like daddy. They're bringing the peace that only God can bring. So they've got to be, they've got to belong to him. They look just like him. They act just like him. We emulate God the Father when we bring peace into our world. So for that reason, it is the duty of Christians to seek peace with all men on principles of righteousness, in accordance with the spirit and teachings of Christ, they should do all in their power to put an end to war. We talked about Christians in the social order. We read from Romans chapter 12. Some of the verses in Romans 12, uh, verses 18 and 19. If it be possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We often focus on the first part. Don't, don't, don't avenge yourself. Just leave it up to God, okay? We are to live at peace with any and everybody that we can. Romans 14, verse 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding, all right? Clear enough, but do we live in a perfect world? No, far from it. And unfortunately, Sometimes in a fallen world, peace is not attainable. It it should never be true among Christians. We should always be able to come to peace. I mean, if we're all Christians, surely we can find common ground. But it is going to be true in some situations. There are times when evil people do very evil things. I don't need, I don't even need to mention names. But if I mention the year... 1939, and I mentioned the country Poland, you know exactly where I'm going, right? There are some people that are so evil, peace is not possible. Now, that's an extreme example. It's not every day that someone is trying to massacre an entire group of people, but there are cases where that does happen there are cases where some are trying to eradicate entire ethnicities of folks and they're happening today it's not just years and years and years ago it's not just in some land far far away it is happening today there are groups of people who are who are in danger of being eradicated because of evil people There are times when peace is not possible. I'll give you another example. There are times where people are so against God's order, there is is nothing else to do. There's no reasoning. There's no debating. There's no logical argument. There's no trying to persuade. There's no peaceable method to deal with it. Now, I'm not saying go get your gun and kill him. I'm not saying that. Don't do that. The sword is in the hand of the government for a reason. There is a reason that that the sword is in government's hand. It has the sword because it must do justice. It must protect order in society. It must stand for the truth, for justice. It must. Otherwise, that government has completely, completely... uh, disregarded its God-given role. But sometimes peace isn't possible. And especially when it comes to nations, sometimes war is the only option. Baptist faith and message doesn't speak directly to war, and there's a good reason for that. We don't want to be involved in the state to such an extent that we are the state. Baptists recognize that the church and the state do need to be separate. That doesn't mean the church has no influence on the state. We talked about that last week. The church ought to have an influence on the state. It ought to have an influence on how government works, on what government stands for, the liberties that government provides. We'll talk a little bit about religious liberty next week and we'll, we'll look at how Baptists view the government's role when it comes to religion. It's not a completely separated, they have nothing to do with each other. It's that government and church can't be conflated, but they're not bitter enemies either. There's a balance here. So it's not the church that goes to war. Church didn't get the sword. We, 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 got, we got this sword. This is our sword. Government, government sword's a little sharper. Government sword is for fighting off evil. That's what it's for. Baptist faith and message doesn't speak directly to war, but it does recognize uh, that it might be needed. Look again at these. I've highlighted some caveats. It is the duty of Christians to seek peace with all men on principles of righteousness. We cannot give up the truth of God for some presumption of peace. Because as Patrick Henry Henry said, and he was quoting Jeremiah when he said it, gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. When we are not on the foundation of God's word, standing on the truth that he has proclaimed, it's not peace. No matter how much we're getting along, it's not real peace. Another caveat, in accordance with the spirit and teachings of Christ, same thing. Not only what he says, not only the letter of the law, but the spirit of it too. In accordance with his spirit and with his teachings. If we are not following Christ in order to gain peace, we have not gained peace. We've missed it. So sometimes there is a necessity for war. It's not good when it is. Sometimes I've mentioned divine judgment. I don't want to point to any specific passages, but let me give you a general overview. Do you, have you ever heard of the, the word herem? Herem is the Hebrew concept of devoting something or someone to destruction. It is the only cause of war that is justified in the Bible. It is a direct command from God to the Israelites when they come in the promised land to devote every single Canaanite, everyone to destruction. Does that mean, does that mean that they are just to slaughter people with complete disregard? No, they are only doing it because God has commanded it. It is his judgment on a people that has been wicked and he has chosen the people of Israel to do it. Now, wait a minute, you say, that sounds terrible. Yes, it is terrible. And it ought only be done when God has specifically and clearly commanded it. It's not our option as a church to go fighting people. It's not our option as a church to go killing people that are committing heresy. It's only when God commands it. And it ought not be done with any kind of closeness to joy or satisfaction because it's on his principles of righteousness to ultra-pacifism that just pretends that no war is just at all, that's obviously wrong. In fact, God doesn't stay out of the fight. Psalm 35 verse 1 says, contend, fight, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight me. Psalm 103 verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice For all who are oppressed. Do you think he works it nicely most of the time? It doesn't happen nicely. He, he, he ransomed the Israelites out of Egypt with what? With great negotiating skills. No. With a mighty hand. He doesn't stay out of the pipe, y'all. Now, he doesn't just go, he doesn't go looking for a pipe. But he doesn't stay out of it when people are being oppressed. He's going to defend them. God confronts evil directly. You you remember, you remember that, that, that verse we read from, from Romans where he says, don't avenge yourselves, but remember he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Yeah. Look at, look at what Deuteronomy 32 35 says. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. This isn't just, oh, don't worry about it, just hand it over to God. He'll take care of it. This is, it's not your place to exercise vengeance because there is a consuming fire of a God that will exercise the vengeance. He does it. He fights. He fights in wrath and in vengeance and in anger. That's why the psalmist has to pray, discipline me, Lord, but not in your wrath, lest I be consumed. He confronts evil directly. Exodus, they are coming out of Egypt. They get to the Red Sea. Pharaoh's changed his mind. They're now closing in on the backside of Israel. The Israelites are saying, what are we going to do? Moses says, y'all just, God will fight for you. Y'all just sit still. Now, does that mean we never do anything? No. In that case, they didn't have to do anything because while they were watching, God brings that east wind all night long and separates those waters and they walk across on bone dry ground, sandy ground. Now, I don't know if you ever know this, but if you've ever, uh, uh, I think I've told the story before. Um, there was a hurricane that came through in Mobile and it sat, Hurricane Danny, and it sat on top of Mobile Bay for more than 24 hours. And it sat there for so long, sucking up the water of the bay That there was literally ground that people could walk across in the bay. It had sucked up the entire bay. It wasn't dry ground, though. It wasn't dry ground. God, when he separated the waters, he got all the drops out. And then, and then as the Israelites had crossed and the Egyptians began to get in there, you know what happened? He put a little bit of that water back, and the mud became, the dirt became mud, chariot wheels started sticking. Listen to what happens. Exodus 24, verse, or Exodus 14, excuse me, verses 24 and 25. And in the morning, watch. The Lord in the pillar of fire and of the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. Listen to this. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Can I translate this for you? We done messed up. <laughs> Let's get out of here too late. You see, God does justice. He does it. He doesn't just talk about it. He does it. And he doesn't just send someone else to do his dirty work for him. He gets his hands muddy and does it himself. Not in, not in a sense of guilt for wrong, because it's not wrong. He's the one that makes sure that the right is done. Isaiah 61 one eight. for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense I will make an everlasting covenant with them. So as God is doing justice, as God is fighting the wars that need to be fought, but seeking peace with men when it's not yet time to fight, uh, just as God does that, uh, don't you think us as kids ought to be willing to do the same things? Shouldn't we be upholding justice? Shouldn't we be doing the things that God does? Yes. Nehemiah 4. You you know Nehemiah, right? And I looked in a rose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, This is while they're building, and, and the enemies are spreading rumors about coming to attack, and they brought work to a standstill, and Nehemiah looks at him and says, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and what? Fight! Don't back down. Now their fighting wasn't really fighting in the sense of war. Their fighting was having their sword at the ready while they're doing their work. One in one hand and a a stone in the other hand. One with a shield guarding while another one's working. That was their form of fighting, but fight nonetheless. First Samuel 17, there's this really tall guy who's mocking Israel. Name's Goliath. Y'all ever heard of him? Yeah, listen to what David tells Saul. Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. David's probably not taller than five feet tall. I mean, he's a runt. You're going to fight some guy nearly twice your size who's been training longer than you've been alive? Yeah, why not I? do wish you had some of that gumption sometimes. Isaiah 117, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Sometimes the fighting is fighting in a court of law. Sometimes the fighting is is reaching out to someone. Sometimes the fighting is done through persuading those who can be persuaded. Sometimes the fighting is done with a sword. But whatever, whatever form the fight takes, fight. Oh, house of David, says the Lord. Execute justice in the morning and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. In other words, either you do what's right or you're going to be swept up in my wrath when I take vengeance on the wrong. That makes it clear, doesn't it? Last passage that I want to share with you. This one's a little bit longer, but I want you to notice the pattern. This one isn't so much about fighting and about peace. But it gives us a few examples to look at. Hebrews chapter 11 is called the hall of faith. It talks about the faith of men of old and faith like like Abraham and Moses and various heroes of the faith. And then it gets down to verse 32. And in verse 32, he says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and fled. Flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, tombed. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, they, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance, read fight, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We have before us many example of men, some who took the torture, some who fought the fight, some who found a way to bring peace, others who had to make war. And we find in our one perfect example, our need for both. We should do everything we can to make peace. But when more is necessary, we need to fight. We fight on God's terms. We fight in God's ways. We do what he requires of us. That's how. That's how the church is to fight. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, may we fight the good fight. May we finish our race. Father, this sometimes it's hard to think about these kinds of things because... War is not, it's not joyful. It's not what we want. Sometimes it's required. And, and sometimes that war takes various forms, but it's always hard. But help us to know when to make peace. Help us to see when those opportunities arise that we can be examples of your peace before a world that is so desperately incomplete. For In the Hebrew, lo shalom, no peace. Father. We we may we be the shalom. May we be the peace that brings them to the Prince of Peace. May we be the ones that help them know what it's like to not need to fight anymore. Use us in any way you see fit. Make us strong for the task that is set before us that we may bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.